Hi, and welcome to Applewood Sermon Podcast. We're so glad you joined us today. If you are new to our podcast or maybe new to our church in general, none of us have it together, but we're here to worship the one who holds us together, and that is Jesus Christ. We hope that this message encourages you, builds your faith, and strengthens your heart as you continue your walk with Christ. So let's join Pastor Derek for today's message. We began John chapter 7 last week where we saw that the Jews were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast occurred during the first part of the month of October. And during the seven-day feast, the Jews would live in booths made of tree branches to commemorate the 40 years wandering through the wilderness that the Israelites had to experience. And during that time, as the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, God miraculously protected them and also provided for them. So this whole Feast of the Tabernacles, they're setting apart a week to celebrate who God is. And remember that God is a God that protects and provides. And in the area of providing, they would take time to remember when God provided the manna and quail from heaven to feed their stomachs as they're wandering around the desert. They would also take time to remember God providing water while they were in the desert as well, like in Exodus 17, when Moses took his staff and struck the rock of Horeb and water came forth, clean, fresh, pure water, more than enough for all the people to drink and to live. And one of the ways they would highlight this specific event of water coming from the rock was during the festival, on each day of the feast, the high priest would visit the pool of Siloam and he would have a golden vessel and he would take water from the pool and they would bring it back into the temple. And the priest would march in the temple around the altar and the temple choir would be singing the Halal, Psalms 113 through 118. I mean, just picture this time. And the priest would pour the water on the altar the offering to God. And at that time, people would shout and celebrate and wave palm branches, rejoicing and praising God for who he is. Many argue this was the most popular feast out of the three feasts where Jewish males were required to head into Jerusalem and celebrate. This was the most popular of all the feasts. And it would have been packed. And everyone there would have been familiar with this ritual of the priest pouring the water on the altar. And this is the backdrop. And we see in our text this morning, Jesus uses this time to draw a parallel between God providing physical water in the desert to satisfy their physical thirst. Now Jesus uses this feast to draw a parallel that he is now the Christ who has come to provide spiritual water to satisfy their spiritual thirst. We're going to see that Jesus is the true rock of Horeb that provides spiritual satisfaction and life for our thirsty souls. So church, would you turn to John chapter seven? We're gonna be starting at verse 25 and reading through the end of the chapter. Before we read the big idea of this morning's message, if you walk away with just sort of a main idea, here's what it would be. Only Jesus can satisfy our thirsty souls and awaken our hearts to bring life 
to the world. Only Jesus can satisfy our thirsty souls. Let's read. Follow along with me, starting at verse 25, John chapter 7. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Is he not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified." Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these things, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. And the Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Everyone went to his home. May God add his blessing to his word. As we look at this group of texts, this group of scriptures, really this morning we're going to see three different types of belief in this narrative. We're going to see confused belief, true belief, and then lastly, disbelief. So let's look at the first kind of belief we see in this text. Confused belief, which does not quench our thirst. Look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. 
Last week, Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he heads right to the temple and he's teaching with great power. He's teaching with great authority. And he says that he has come to glorify the Father. And we saw last week that as he's speaking to the crowd in the temple that there was great confusion amongst the crowd. When they heard him preach and teach, some said he was just a good man. He wasn't the savior. He was just a good man. Others said he was a deceiver, that he was purposely leading people away. Others accused Jesus of having a demon when he said the Jews were trying to kill him. And in our text, verse 25, we see that there's still great confusion within the temple, within the crowd. And what does the crowd say? They ask each other in verse 25, is this the man the religious leaders want to kill? I mean, they're asking each other, as Jesus is there and he's, he's teaching, isn't this the man that the, the Jews want to kill? So we know in the crowd that there was a certain group of people who lived in close proximity to Jerusalem. This group saw Jesus enter into the temple and clear it out. This group witnessed Jesus healing the crippled man on the Sabbath in John chapter 5. They watched the religious leaders get frustrated with Jesus. This group overheard and knew that the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. And notice what they say. Why aren't they doing it? Why aren't they arresting Jesus? Why aren't they trying to kill him? Especially because he's there and he continues to teach. And they asked themselves, do the religious leaders now even think that this is the Christ? I mean, what an incredible question. The same question for you this morning. Is Jesus the Christ? But notice what the, cr the crowd does, quickly dismisses that idea. Look at verse 27. They say, he can't be the Christ. We know where this man is from. But whatever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. What do they say? They say, he can't be the Christ. I mean, we know where he's from. We know this Jesus. We know his family. We know where he came from. This can't be the Christ. Why? Because they had this idea that when the Christ came, no one would know where he came from. I mean, where did they get that? That idea from many believed at that time that the Messiah was just going to appear supernaturally in the temple with a dramatic flash that one moment he's not there and just like that he's there and he's in the temple and many believed that because of Malachi chapter 3 I want to read it verse 1 behold I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. So they would read Malachi 3. And they had this picture that Jesus was just going to mysteriously come into the temple. And we knew he did when he came into the temple and cleared the temple. This isn't talking about his birth. These people are waiting for a Messiah, but they're ignorant of Scripture. Pastor Derek, what do you mean by that? Because all throughout Scripture clearly speaks of Jesus as being born in Bethlehem. That Jesus is not just going to magically appear in the temple. Scripture interprets Scripture. They also knew in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was going to be an ordinary, plain man, God-man. Nothing special about them. So they had this idea of the Messiah coming, but they didn't have a biblical view of what it would look like. 
In verse 28, Jesus begins to cry out. He yelled so loud, everyone could hear him. And what does he say when he knows this is going around in the crowd? He says, you both know me and know where I am from. Jesus is speaking with great sarcasm and irony. What is he saying? You think you know me. You're making a conclusion regarding me and you think you know me and where I'm from, but you have no idea who I am and where I'm from. Your eyes are blind. You only see me in a physical sense. And in chapter eight, he, Jesus rebukes them and he says, you neither know me nor my father. And if you knew me, you would know my father. And he says, I've come not of myself, but he who has sent me here. Jesus is unashamedly who he is and why he came. And he's preaching truth again. And he's saying, I am the Messiah. And I've come on purpose from my father. My father sent me to redeem the world. This is messianic language that Jesus is preaching to the crowd. I am equal with the Father. All authority has been given to me, and I'm going to die on the cross from the redemption of mankind. And look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. So Jesus is preaching truth, and now people are starting to, to see or maybe understand, and people are talking about Jesus, and they get really nervous. So what do they do? The Pharisees unite with the chief priests. Who are the chief priests? The chief priests were the Sadducees. And if we know of biblical history, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they hate each other. They're arch rivals. So here's what's amazing. Mutual hatred for Jesus caused the chief priests and the Pharisees to come together to get rid of him. Now they're best friends. They have a common purpose and goal to get rid of this Jesus. And what do they do? They send the officers to arrest him. Who were the officers? They were the temple guards. They were the Levites who were tasked with maintaining order in the temple. They were the temple police force. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they send the temple guards to go and seize Jesus. And notice what happens. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. Is this unbelievable? What is God saying? That he is sovereign over the world. He is sovereign over his son. And guess what? He's sovereign over you and your kids and your family. And nothing can happen to us or you or your children that doesn't go through the sovereignty of God and his will and his plan. And here Jesus is saying, you've come to seize me, but guess what? I'm not worried. Why? Because it's not my time. Look at verse 33. For a little while longer I am with you and then I go to the one who sent me, Jesus speaks again, and he says, I'm only here for a little while longer. You're not going to be able to seize me. My time has not yet come, but I'm only here for a little while. Jesus is foreshadowing the next feast, the feast of Passover. What's going to happen when the guards come to seize Jesus? Then Jesus is going to let them arrest him. Then Jesus is going to let them kill him because he's going to defeat death, and he's going to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin, and he's going to defeat death by rising again on the third day. And he's going to sit at the right hand of God. That's what he says. Soon, soon, I'll let you arrest me. And soon I will depart and I will go back to be with my father. 
sitting at the right hand. And we know Paul writing to the church in Romans in chapter eight. That's what he says. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Easter's coming. That's what we're going to celebrate. Death has lost its sting. The grave didn't keep Jesus There, he rose from the dead, and right now he's victorious, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And notice what Jesus says right after that. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Whoa. You talk about a rebuke from Jesus. Here it is again. Last week, Jesus spoke to his brothers. And this week, now he's speaking to the crowd, the the officers. And he says, you are going to seek me, but you're not going to be able to find me. These have to be some of the hardest words to ever hear. What is Jesus saying? Where I'm going, you cannot come. You will not have eternal life in heaven. You will not be able to enter because you don't know who I am. Instead of the officers in the crowd being devastated, I mean, imagine that. What if Jesus looked you right in your eyes and said that to you? You don't know me, and where I'm going, you're never going to be able to come. I mean, think of that. If there was one statement that would just crush you and devastate you, this is it. And yet, how does the crowd respond? They don't even understand. They're not brokenhearted. They're not spiritually crushed. They don't understand the gravity of Christ's rebuke. They're confused. They are still thinking in the physical sense. And that's where they respond to one another. Where is he going to go? Is he going to go to the dispersion with the Greeks? Is he going to leave and go so far away where he cannot be found? Then his life won't be a threat to us. They're viewing it in a physical way. As we look at this, we see those in the crowd who have a confused belief. What do you mean by that, Pastor Derek? Here's what I mean. You have those in the crowd who were religious. They were religious. They thought they had it all together. They were waiting for the Messiah. They even thought that they had an idea of what it would look like when the Messiah came. They thought they knew Christ. They showed up because they were interested in seeing him or hearing from him or seeing these miracles. They were not hostile towards him. Many were there and they were confused. Their eyes were not open. They thought they were okay, yet they didn't understand the reality of who Christ is and what he commands. They had this sort of faith, but it wasn't authentic faith. It wasn't real faith. It was confused faith. And as we see those in the crowd, we see characteristics of this confused faith, not understanding who Christ is fully, not understanding his kingdom, and that's a spiritual kingdom and not a physical kingdom. As we see the people in the crowd with confused faith, church, don't we see this in today? Seems like more than ever. Many who say they know Christ, yet they're still blinded to the reality of who he is and what he requires. Many who are comfortable with Jesus and say, hey, I know Christ, he's my savior, but they don't know biblically who he is or what he stands for. People who are not necessarily hostile towards Christ at the moment, but they're confused and they think they're saved, but they're not. And we see many of these characteristics in our text a person with confused faith. What are some of these characteristics of confused faith? Number one, 
They consider themselves believers, but do not have a personal relationship with Christ. Hey, I'm waiting for a Messiah to come, but there's, he's right in front of him and there's no relationship. Jesus says, I don't know you and you don't know me. Number two, they have not surrendered their lives and have no desire to be obedient to his will. People there weren't surrendering their lives. They wanted something from Jesus. They wanted to see a show or a spectacle. Number three, characteristics of confused faith. They often do not believe Christ is the only way. Number four, they do not prioritize the Bible as the ultimate authority. Therefore, they are not sure of what Christ stood for. Number five, those that have confused faith, usually they're heavenly influenced by public opinion and not personal conviction. Number six, they rely heavily on the approval of the authorities and will not stand for Christ when it feels uncomfortable. They'll submit to the leadership of man. Number seven, those with confused faith possess a portion of information usually acquired from family or school or books or previous church experience or friends, but they're too complacent to hunger and learn more. There's no thirst and hunger for righteousness. And as a result of all of these characteristics, they often become disoriented and ultimately end up arguing and living against what Christ stood for. And these are the people who Christ says, you are confused, you don't know me, I don't know you, and where I am going, you cannot come. But we don't just see those who have confused faith, we see those who have true belief, true faith in the living water. Look at verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood, cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So now it's the last day, the great day of the feast. Many believe that this last day, this great day, actually happened on the eighth day when the feast was over. And what would happen on the eighth day? There'd be no water being poured out. There'd be no singing. There'd be no shouting. It was a day of solemn repentance before the Lord. So many believe that it was on this day where it was still and quiet and somber, where Jesus stands up and cries out one of the greatest gospel messages in all of his ministry. And what does he say? I mean, picture Jesus standing and crying out. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink and you'll experience living water. I mean, picture Jesus saying this and everyone hearing it. What does he say? Anyone, this is an invitation. Friends, this is as broad as it gets. Jesus just said, you think you know me and you don't. But right after that, what does he say? He gives this invitation. Anyone, anyone who is thirsty, come to me. It doesn't matter if they were friends or enemies, Jews or Gentiles, Pharisees or officers. The invitation stands. And Jesus says, anyone who thirsts. Well, what does it mean to thirst? What is Jesus talking about? This whole feast celebrated those 
who were in the desert and had a physical thirst that Jesus satisfied with physical water. And now, what is Jesus doing? He gives us the physical to point to the spiritual. And he's saying, if anyone desires, has this spiritual thirst, you can come to me. And what is he talking about? When the Father draws people to him, what happens? The Father starts opening your eyes to see that this world cannot satisfy, that there is life after death, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And when the Father starts drawing us and opening eyes, our eyes to this reality, we start thirsting for reconciliation or for forgiveness. It's when a man feels his sin and wants forgiveness and begins to recognize his need for him. This can only happen with God's drawing. So many people in the world, they just thirst for the world. They just consume the world. That's all they know. If it's sexually or physically or with money or success, they're thirsting for something, but they don't see. Their eyes have never been opened. And Jesus is saying, when the Father begins to draw you in, there is another type of thirst, a spiritual thirst, where you recognize that there is one who can satisfy that thirst. And it begins with understanding our sin. And wanting forgiveness. You can't force yourself to thirst this way. It's a result of the Father drawing you in. And all throughout scripture we see this happening. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And the Jews heard it. And their Jews, they they didn't understand. They didn't understand their spiritual thirst. And when Peter preached that sermon. What does Acts say? Their hearts were pricked. Many in the crowd begin to thirst spiritually for reconciliation to the Father. We see this in the Philippian jailer when he cried out to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? That was the thirst that Jesus is talking about. When your eyes begin to be open for reconciliation, that the world doesn't revolve around you, that you are not God, that you are accountable to your divine maker, and you begin to thirst, how do I get it reconciled? And here's the greatest news. Jesus tells us, what does he say? First, you must what, church? Come to me. Come to me. He doesn't say keep digging. Keep digging until you hit water. Join a church. Be baptized. Take communion a hundred times. Do penances. Give money to the church. Clean up your life. No. What does Jesus say? When you start experiencing this spiritual thirst, all we have to do is simply what, church? Come to him and receive and drink of this living water. In Isaiah 55, the whole beginning of Isaiah's judgment in 55, he says this, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and you will have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Isaiah is saying, come to the table. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can pay. And guess what? Come to the waters. And the same is true of the gospel. There's nothing you could do to earn your salvation. Church, stop earning it. Stop trying to simply come in humility to the one who paid for you with his blood. Revelations twenty two seventeen. the spirit and the bride say what? Come, let the one who is here say come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost come. 
So you come to Christ, but it doesn't stop there. What does he say next? Drink. We come to Christ in humility and we drink. What does that mean? Look at verse 38. To drink of this water is to believe in him. To believe in him that he is who he said he is. Think of the rich young ruler who came to Christ, but he never drank. He walked away sad because he didn't want to part with the world. And Jesus is saying, not only just come to me, but believe that I am who I said I am. And have a relationship with me. And this is what it means to know him. You think you know me, but you don't. How do you know me? You come and you believe and you begin a relationship with me. You believe that I'm going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. That through faith, I paid for your sins, Jesus says, and you can have my righteousness put upon you. Surrender your life for me and my glory, and what will happen? You'll be satisfied. That thirst will be satisfied. Jesus said a similar thing to the woman at the well, remember? What does he say? You're thirsting for physical water, thirst for spiritual water. And now in the middle of this feast and the imagery of the priest pouring the water and remembering the rock at Horeb, Jesus saying the same way, just like the rock of Horeb satisfied the Israelites, I have a satisfaction that once you partake in this water, you'll never thirst again. What does it mean? Once you drink of it, you are saved. That thirst is satisfied for all of eternity. You can't undo it. And notice the response as he shares the gospel. Early in verse 31, many believed in him. And in verse 40, people say, he, he is the prophet. He is the Messiah. So as the gospel is preached, people in the crowd, they believe they have this true faith. And he says in verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This is unbelievable. He says, not only will you experience the water, but what's going to happen, Steve? This water is going to do what? You're going to have rivers, plural, of water flowing out of you, quenching the thirst of others who are being drawn to the Father, who are understanding that they are spiritually thirsty. Not only are we satisfied and redeemed, but now God is going to use us to redeem the world, and these rivers are going to flow out of this. Out of our belly, our innermost being. Is this amazing? So much of our culture, it's like, oh, my spiritual journey, my spiritual life. God is there for me to give me what I need. Absolutely not. Church is not there for you. And God is not there for you. We are there for him. We drink the water and then his streams of water flow out of us. Where? To your neighborhood, to your coworkers, to those on the dance team and the parents and all of this. This is God's desire. Do you hear the missional heart of Christ? It's not just to play games. Church is not just a social spectator event where we come to like check this off. No, there's way more than that. May you come and may the waters fill you up this morning and may you go and bring that water to other people. Both those who are thirsty and those who are saints. Verse 39, he gives us a description of this water. He says, this is, but this, the spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
Jesus is speaking of this day where the Holy Spirit's going to come and work in a new way and indwell every believer at salvation. And he's speaking of this promised helper, this paracletus, the one who empowers us to live for him. And he's saying the spirit's not available yet to dwell permanently in the life of every believer because first I have to go to the cross and be glorified. But that day is coming where the rivers of life, spiritual life will throw, flow in us and through us. And that's exactly what happened in Acts chapter two at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. Think about this. When the Holy Spirit came, people were like, hey, I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. Or hey, I'm saved and God is my personal God and I'm gonna keep it silent. No, in Acts two, in the Holy Spirit, the river of water and life came down. What happened? It flowed through them to others immediately and the same should be true of us, church, if you're in Christ. In Acts chapter two, Verse four, listen, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, languages, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. The Holy Spirit came and the rivers of life flowed to the nations through hearing the gospel in their own languages. Isn't this incredible? Out of all the illustrations Christ could have used to describe the Holy Spirit coming into us, he used this imagery of rivers and flowing in us and through us. Just thinking the definition of a river, a natural stream of water flowing in a channel to another source. And Jesus is saying, That if you partake in this water, this salvation, that God's going to use you to bring spiritual waters to others. We live in a world that is a barren desert. I mean, look around. People are dying of thirst. And here's the greatest news. We get to be a part of God drawing and them drinking of this spiritual water. There's no greater purpose. I meet with people all the time. What am I doing? What's life about? This is it. This is what life's about. This is why we're here. It's because James, God wants to use you for the water to flow out of you to make a difference and quench others' thirsts. However, many of our spiritual lives at times, if we are honest, doesn't resemble rivers of living water throwing out of us, right? Many of our spiritual lives resemble a pond. I know mine does at times. A pond is an inland body of standing water, stilled water, stagnant water. There's limited life. There's no fresh water coming in and out. May we hear the words of our Father. God has so much more for us through his power, not our own strength. So my question to us this morning, is this the characteristic of your life? Would you describe your spiritual life this morning as one which water flows freely out of to others or more like a pond? 
I pray for our church that this is what we would be about, that we wouldn't get distracted with all these things the world tries to define the church or tells us what's successful. I pray for us that we would abide in the word and that the water of life would flow out of these doors into the city of Wheat Ridge and Arvada and Golden and Lakewood, that all of us, we would take this serious and we don't know. Well, a lot of us think, well, there's no urgency. Yes, Christ can come back tonight. Do you understand that? We are to redeem the time and may the waters of life flow out of this building, out of our lives and our families to bring God glory like never before. We've seen confused belief. We've seen true belief. Now we're going to look at disbelief and a disbelief which keeps others from the living water. Look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring them? So the officers show back up. I mean, picture this scene. It'd be humorous. They show back up, and they don't have Jesus. And the Pharisees and the chief priests, they ask them, why didn't you bring them? And notice their reaction. They don't say, well, the crowd wouldn't let us bring him. They don't make any excuses. What do they say? Why is it that they didn't bring Jesus to them? Never has a man spoken this way. These were religiously trained Levites, priests, and yet they're standing before their authority and their reason they didn't bring Jesus is because no one has ever spoken this way. They didn't like that answer. How did the Pharisees respond? First, they ridiculed them. They said, have you not also been led astray. I mean, the message is clear. They were asking the officers, how could you be so stupid and gullible? Have you been seduced by the deceiver? Don't you have any spiritual discernment? You're being led astray as well. They ridicule the officers. I mean, do you sense the pride and arrogance in the Pharisees and chief priests heart? And then they don't stop there. What do they say? They target their pride and prestige next, and they say the crowd, which does not know the law, they are accursed. What do they say to the officers? You should, you should be better than that. You don't have an excuse to be deceived. Those common people, those least of these, those people who aren't trained like us and aren't educated like us, those normal people who are accursed, you're way better than them. How can you be deceived? You're becoming like those normal people who are damned because we are the religious elite. Isn't that shocking? And in verse 50, Nicodemus said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing. Nicodemus, one of the most prominent, respected rabbis. We remember him in chapter three, he saw Jesus out. And he asked Jesus, how, how do I be, be, become born again? And you could picture, you could sense that Jesus is beginning to draw him in. Nicodemus is in the process of understanding his spiritual thirst. And he speaks up and he says, remember, we can't judge a man without hearing. This is part of our religious procedure. Even though there's no scripture to back it up, it was one of their traditions. And Nicodemus is like, you can't kill him. You, you can't arrest him without a hearing. I mean, even the Romans in Acts 25, they didn't condemn people without 
a hearing and notice the reaction of the Pharisees and chief priests now to Nicodemus. They turn on him in verse 52. And they said, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. They turn on Nicodemus and they taunt him. And now they identify him with the despised, unsophisticated people of Galilee. And they say, you don't know theology because no prophet arises out of Galilee, which was wrong. Jonah was from Galilee. Many argue Nahum and Hosea was from Galilee. So the leaders turn on Nicodemus. Friends, there's always going to be those who not only disbelieve, but they make it their mission to try and stop others from believing. And here's the irony. These were the leaders, the religious leaders. They were supposed to have the way. And not only that, disbelief hardened their hearts. They were so blinded. Well, not only that they disbelieved, but they wanted to stop everyone else from believing. Why did they say, seize him, seize him, get rid of him? And I think we need to understand as well that the same will be true today. There will be those who are so hardened and so blinded that not only will they disbelieve, it will make it their goal to make sure other people don't believe as well. I remember when I accepted Jesus when I was 17, went to church one night and my eyes were open and saw this desire for spiritual water and the Lord through belief, satisfy that need that night. And I remember going to school the next day and telling my friends that, you know, I'm not going to party anymore. I'm not going to drink anymore. And I'll never forget, one of my friends just hated Christians, hated Christians. And he pulled me aside and he looked me straight in the eyes. There was no confusion about Jesus, but ultimately it was. But he looked at me and he said, Derek, don't waste your life on something so stupid where his goal was to try to get me to disbelieve. Church, may we understand that this world, there are gonna be people like that. May we be examples of living water and may God even use us for those people for them to experience salvation through Christ alone. As we looked at our text this morning, we see this great divide in the crowd and preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ. And praise God there was a divide because those who believed had to stay strong in order for there to be some sort of division. They didn't give in to the culture and crowd. And may it be true of us if you're in Christ. But we see this great divide happen and we see those who had confused belief, those who had true belief, and those who had disbelief. Where are you today? May you see clearly that there's only one type of belief that leads to eternal satisfaction. And my heart for you is that you would experience Jesus Christ as Savior and you would partake in the living water. The word of God to the people of God. For the glory of God, let us pray.